Start jogging around the block or simply sit outside on a hot summer day and you begin to feel moisture develop all over your body. Maybe a drop of sweat will roll down your face. Clothes start to get sticky. You start feeling in greater intensity a process that's actually going on all the time, sweating. You may never thought too much about your sweat or perhaps been a little embarrassed by it when your sweat becomes noticeable in a socially delicate situation. But my guest today says that human sweat is in fact incredibly fascinating and something you should embrace with real appreciation and enthusiasm. Her name is Sarah Everts and she's a science journalist and the author of The Joy of Sweat, The Strange Science of Perspiration. Sarah and I begin our conversation with what sweat is, the two kinds your body produces, and how human sweating is unique in what Sarah calls our species superpower. We then get into the surprising quickness with which the things we drink start coming out of our pores, why we sweat when we're anxious or nervous, whether how much you personally sweat comes down to genetics or environment, and why the fitter you are, the more you sweat. Sarah impacts whether there are differences between how men and women sweat and smell, whether our dislike for body odor is innate or culturally conditioned, why some people are smellier than others, and the role that smell and pheromones play in attraction. Sarah also explains whether antiperspirants are bad for you and if you should switch to a natural deodorant. And we end our conversation with why it feels so good to make ourselves intentionally sweaty through things like a sauna and whether hitting the sauna can detox your body. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awim.is sweat. All right, Sarah Everts, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. So you've got a book called The Joy of Sweat, The Strange Science of Perspiration. And this book had you traveling around the world talking to scientists about sweat. So how did that happen? How did you end up traveling the world? You went to Germany, I think. You went to different countries, I think Russia at one point, to research about sweat. How'd that happen? Well, you know, I'm a science journalist and, you know, a long time ago I was a chemist, but I'm also a person who is like always slightly afraid that I might sweat a little bit too much. And, you know, at some point I kind of decided, you know, let's just uh, like dig into the research on sweat instead of like being anxious about it. And so, yeah, I tracked down people who were doing scientific analyses of sweat and then also people who are kind of playing around with cultural taboos. And yeah, for example, that's how I ended up in Moscow at a sweat dating event. And so something you highlight in the book is that sweat is something we all do. But sweat has pretty much gotten the short shrift in scientific research. What's going on there? Why is that? Yeah, it's really interesting because like if you just like look at the scientific literature, you see that compared to say pee, um, sweat has like an order of magnitude less articles about it. And you know, you wonder if if scientists just wondered if it was just salt and water. And actually, sweat is so much more interesting than that because it's sourced from the watery parts of blood. Pretty much anything that's circulating around in your blood system kind of emerges out in sweat because your sweat glands, you know, once the big things in in blood like red blood cells, platelets, immune cells are filtered out, all that liquidy stuff gets dispatched to your skin when you're too hot. All right. Okay. So that's interesting. We'll talk more about what makes up sweat, but that was something I learned. Like, what is sweat? Well, it's salt and water because we've all tasted our sweat probably, but I didn't know it came, I didn't know it came from your blood. (laughs) Like it was just basically your blood. Yeah, it's it's the the liquidy parts. So effectively you have, that's called blood plasma. And, you know, when you cut open a body, you know, I don't mean that in like a horrific way, like our bodies are wet inside, right? There's there's moist liquid around all of our organs. That's called interstitial fluid. And so interstitial fluid comes from blood plasma, that liquidy parts of blood. And then when we overheat and our sweat glands get the like 
big directive to open the floodgates. Well, what do they do? They go to that interstitial fluid and they dispatch it to the surface because when you evaporate water, this kind of consumes heat. And so the sweat evaporation effectively whisks heat away from your hot body and out into the atmosphere. You also mentioned in the book, okay, sweat is primarily salt and water, but there are two types of perspiration, right? You have two types of sweat pores. What are those two types of sweat pores and what's the difference between the sweat that comes out of each one? Out of our sweat pores that cover our body, we have about two to five million. I have three million sweat pores. That is called eccrine sweat. And that's that liquidy part of the blood that's responsible for helping us cool off. But there is another kind of sweat gland, and that's the one that appears in armpits at puberty. It's called the apocrine gland, and its sweat is actually not watery or salty at all. It's very waxy. It's actually pretty similar to earwax. And when that sweat starts coming out anywhere where hair grows at puberty, bacteria living in your armpits eat it, and it's their metabolites, effectively bacteria poop, that is that stinky smell that starts wafting out of armpits uh, from the teenage years onward. We'll talk a little more about BO here in a bit, but do we know why we have that special armpit gland? Like, why, why do we sweat that? What's the purpose of it? Right. That's stymied scientists for a long time, but many think that it does have to do with what's called chemical communication that or odorous communication that this is a way that we share information about ourselves to other humans. And it probably had more of a, a role earlier in our evolutionary history, but it's kind of like vestigial. It's still there around. And then, of course, some people speculate that it's involved in, you know, sexual maturation, that it's somehow involved in, you know, <laughs> love uh, or at least romance because it appears at puberty, right, when everything else gets cracking for procreation. All right, and that connects to the, the subject of pheromones, and we're going to talk about that here in a little bit. But let's talk about the idea of sweating in the animal kingdom in general. So all animals have to keep themselves cool somehow because just living creates heat through metabolism. And if you don't cool yourself off, you're going to die. But the way humans cool off with sweat is different from other animals. How so? Right. So sweating, as much as it's kind of gross to a lot of people, is actually our superpower in the animal kingdom. It's one of the things that makes us unique along with nakedness. And the reason it's such a superpower is that it allows us to cool down while we're on the move. So if you can imagine in our history, you know, many of the prey that we needed to hunt sprints faster than us. But because we have this huge surface area for evaporating off water, getting rid of our body heat, we can cool down while on the run. And so our prey, you know, sprints away super fast, but then they have to stop and cool down because death by heat stroke, a terrible way to die. And, you know, eventually we can catch up forcing them to sprint away and sprint away and sprint away until they're so weakened by heat stroke that, you know, they're easy to, to kill or to hunt. And what's so amazing about uh, humans is our naked skin surface, right? So if you think about a dog panting, we all know that's how dogs cool down. 
It is evaporating away water because that's the best way to cool your body down, but it's doing it off the only naked surface that it has, its tongue, right? And instead, humans have our whole bodies to do that on. And even chimpanzees, our, our closest evolutionary neighbor or, or relative, although they have sweat glands over their whole bodies, many, many primates do, not all, but some, they are cooling down by panting because, you know, our naked bodies have that surface area. And, you know, the modern incarnation of this is, you know, we can run marathons. We're really good at, you know, not dying of heat stroke while we're exercising heavily. Yeah. We uh, had Daniel Lieberman on the podcast and I think you talked oh, to him. Oh, he's great. Yeah. yeah. And he talked about there's, they've done, he's done a race with horses. Like, so it's like a long distance yeah. race where he raced a horse and in the beginning the horse was beating him, but eventually the humans all beat the horses because the humans can keep going because the horse at the stop because they overheat and they have to cool down. Exactly. And what's kind of also amazing is that because this like evaporation of water is so important for staying cool, animals dispatch other bodily fluids, whatever they have available to the surface of their, their bodies to get rid of heat. And, you know, you know, dogs use saliva, but, you know, seals rely on urine, honeybees vomit on themselves, all to get their bodies wet so that it can weigh heat. And the thing about humans is, A, we've got specialized glands just to do this, number one. And number two, we do it so much more efficiently than, than all other animals. And so, yeah, it really is our kind of amazing evolutionary superpower. And if you know what evolution could have bequeathed us, like we could be cooling down from pee. Like, when you know that, sweat is so much less gross. Right, yeah. I'm grateful I don't have to pee on myself to cool myself down. So let's talk a little bit more about sweat. So one of the, some of the research that's been going on is trying to figure out how soon does the water we consume become sweat? And I think that also we need to ask too is like, how often are we sweating? Are we sweating all the time or do we only sweat when we get, you know, reached a certain temperature? Right. We are sweating all the time. If we weren't, we would be freaking miserable, right? Um, our body's constantly making micro adjustments. And most of the time when we notice sweat, it's because we've, you know, upped our activity. And so our, our sweat glands are like on hyperdrive and they're like, crap, we got to get going. Right. But at any moment, your body is releasing a tiny amount of sweat to make micro adjustments to your internal temperature. And so, you know, as, as a result, we do need to drink water to stay hydrated. And uh, there's this awesome scientist that you're kind of referring to, this guy named Michael Zeck, who really likes going to the sauna. And uh, one time he was like in the sauna getting philosophical with his buddy. And they were like, hmm, you know, I wonder how quickly, you know, when you drink a glass of water, how quickly does that water, you know, get absorbed by your intestinal tract, get, you know, put into your blood, get dispatched to your, you know, internal organs, percolate to your skin, and then emerge out in sweat. And, you know, when most of us get philosophical in the sauna, you know, that's the end of that. But because he's a scientist, he could do the experiment. And so, he spiked his favorite rehydration drink, which in Germany for him is this weird uh, combination 50 50 
cola 50-50 wheat beer. It's kind of like a brown shandy. And uh, so he spiked it with this chemical that he could measure. And that's not normally found in our bodies or in our sweat. So he drinks his cola Weizen, it's what it's called, and then quickly undresses, gets into the sauna and starts measuring and capturing the sweat coming out of his skin at timed intervals. And he found that it took 15 minutes for that chemical tracer that he had put in his drink to come out of his sweat pores, which is pretty fast, right? That is really fast. I didn't think it would be that fast. No, neither did I. He he made me guess. <laughs> and I, I guessed closer to an hour, but uh, yeah, nope, it's really fast. So sweat's primarily to regulate our body temperature, but we also sweat when we're anxious or nervous. Why do we do that? That's super interesting to me. So there's like a lot of speculation about this. One idea that uh, researchers have is that it's kind of anticipatory, right? When we're anxious for most of human history, we've had to like run really fast away from the thing that we're scared of. And so it might be our body effectively predicting from anxiety that we're going to be running and thus turning up the heat and that it would be wise to perhaps start the cool down strategy pronto. But it's also this really interesting kind of vestigial aspect of evolution. So remember how I said humans have these salty sweat glands over our whole body. We've got millions of them. And what's really interesting is that all mammals have those salty sweat glands, but they're only located for most mammals in their paws. And that was because initially this ecrine sweat, this kind of salty, you know, watery parts of blood was used for grip, for climbing. And effectively, when an animal got scared and had to like run away, possibly up a tree, that's a little bit of that sweat would come out to help them with grip. And so, you know, when you're stressed out and notice that your hands are getting sweaty, it's a vestigial response. Um, from, you know, your, your mammalian predecessors that had to climb a tree in their anxious moments. Interesting. So another thing you highlight too is sweat works better in certain climates than others in keeping us cool. So the whole cooling mechanism is evaporation. How does climate affect how effective that evaporation cooling is? Yeah. So you know, in a hot climate, you can imagine the sweat is evaporated much more quickly away. And that's due to some chemistry that you may have learned in high school. Like in a very humid place, there's already a lot of uh, evaporated water in the atmosphere. And it's kind of giving a, a pushback to the water on your skin that's trying to evaporate to whisk away heat. And so in a desert, the water that you emit with, with sweat really evaporates quickly. And so that's really good for cooling. It's not good for, for hydration. That's why in many very dry climates, you're advised to wear cool, loose clothing so that you kind of keep a little bit of humidity at your skin surface, right? But in really super sweaty climates or humid climates, sorry, you want to take off as much clothing as possible to effectively give all those water molecules on your, your skin a chance to, to get out and away, even when there's already a lot of water molecules around in the atmosphere kind of taking up space. All right. That's a good practical takeaway there, keeping cool. I live in Oklahoma. It's really humid here. So wearing 
lots of loose clothing during the summer, not probably a good idea. But if I were in Arizona, yes. Yeah, exactly. And if you think about what a dog does while they're panting, the whole reason that they're heaving in and out, like the panting part, right, is they are trying to push all that water that has just evaporated up off their tongue and is making the surface just above their tongue dense with water molecules. They're heaving all that wet air away and allowing drier air to come on top of their tongue to make more room for more water molecules. So that's the whole point of of panting is to kind of move that wet air away as fast as possible, especially since they don't have a lot of surface area for this cooling strategy. Well, let's talk about how sweating differs across populations. So you, you started this book because you thought, well, I probably sweat more than most people. And you just told me you have 3 million sweat pores. How, what influences how much we sweat? Is it primarily genetics or can our environment also play a role? Yeah, it's a bit of a nature and nurture situation. So certainly um, some families are, are sweatier than others. And that could be due to, you know, just the number of sweat pores that you have on your body. There's quite a range. Also like the flux out of your sweat glands. So how quickly the sweat is coming out that's a big range and, and your genetics might mean that you have a bigger flow than I do, or I probably have a bigger flow than you. And then there's also, you know, how quickly, how responsive your body is to temperature changes. But what's really interesting is this nurture side and evolutionary biologists are, are really digging into this right now because when you're born, you're born with all the sweat glands that you're going to have. Like sweat glands are developed in utero, but they don't all become active at birth. It's only in your toddler years that like they come, you know, to f- become fully operational, so to speak. And so in those first early years of your life, your body is cluing into the environment in which you live and, and learning whether, you know, you're in a, a super hot place. And so you have to maybe be a bit more active or more efficient or whether you're in a cool place. And so, yeah, there's this mix of both, you know, what you have genetically and, you know, where you spent your early years. I mean, the take home message though, is that you can blame your parents for both because uh, they're responsible for your genetics and, you know, also presumably where you spent your toddler years. Well, let's say someone is born in a cool, cold, dry area, and then they move to Florida, for example. Will their body adapt and sweat more or less based on that that move? Right. So your body's uh, acclimatized, right? So, you know, but they do it a little bit slowly. And then you have this like baseline, which you start with. So, you know, for example, right now, athletes are, are prepping for Tokyo where it's super humid and super hot. Some say it might be the hottest Olympics ever. And so they are all training in extremely hot weather so that their bodies can figure out how to be efficient at cooling in extremely humid, hot weather. So you you do, there is this process where your body does learn to adapt, but at some point we all have a baseline and that baseline is set in your, your toddler years. And so, yeah, you know, there are some micro adjustments, but um, at some point you're stuck with what you have. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. And now back to the show. Something I've read, I don't know where I read it, 
maybe on the interwebs or on like an immense health magazine from 1992 or something, uh, <laughs> is that the fitter you are, the more you sweat. Is there anything to that? Well, yeah, because if you are super fit, right, your body has learned that when you start exercising, when you start dialing up the temperature, you are not going to be doing this for, you know, 30 seconds or even, you know, 15 minutes. (laughs) You're probably going to be doing this for like over an hour. And so athletes actually have a tendency to sweat more, the more that they train and the fitter that they are. And this is also true for people who kind of have sauna going as, as a hobby. So for example, I noticed that when I moved to Germany and, you know, wanted to you know, integrate with the locals who are all obsessed with going to to the sauna, that my sweating rates got faster and more voluminous because I was suddenly going to the sauna, not just for, you know, a one-time deal, but like going regularly and spending a heck of a lot of time in a really hot space. So ultimately it's all part of this like acclimatization process where your body is like learning about your behavior and figures out that, oh, geez, when the temperature rises, she's going to be in there or he's going to be in there for a heck of a long time. Let's get cracking on the cool down directive. Are there differences between men and women in how they sweat? Not really. So generally, uh, any differences that you see are most likely just due to volume to surface area issues. There's not anything really biologically different in how sweat glands work or, or how many there are. But because, you know, men are on average larger than women, they've got slightly more sweaty activity because they've got that much more body to keep cool. Well, let's get to the fun stuff here, which is like why sweat smells and like the social aspect of being smelly humans. So you mentioned earlier that one type of sweat, I forgot the name of the gland, the sweat pore that produces, starts with an A, right? Oh, apocrine. Yeah, the apocrine sweat. That's the stuff. So our, the bacteria on our skin and our armpits starts eating that stuff and the bacteria fart and that's basically our BO. Why do... I guess I'd say, I think Americans or Westerners in general, like, why do we find BO so off-putting? Like, why don't we like it? Well, so I would say two things. I think that Americans take it to a whole nother level of, of insecurity. But I would say that for much of human history, people have been kind of worried about the odor of themselves. So one of my favorite quotes, which is on my wall right now, it's advice from the Roman poet Catullus. So this is like 2000 years ago um, to his friend and then his nemesis, this guy named Rufus. He says, um, wonder not, Rufus, why none of the opposite sex wishes to place her dainty thighs beneath you, not even if you undermine her virtue with gifts of choice silk or the enticement of a pellucid gem. You are being hurt by an ugly rumor which asserts that beneath your armpits dwells a ferocious goat. This they fear, and no wonder, for it's a right-ranked beast that no pretty girl will go to bed with. So, either get rid of this painful affront to the nostrils or cease to wonder why the ladies flee. So I love that because, you know, it speaks to the fact that, you know, for at least 2000 years, we've been a bit worried about our body odor. But most of that time, the way that we've dealt with it is to wash with water, possibly soap, and or apply a huge amount of perfume to kind of overwhelm our BO. 
And it wasn't really until the turn of the 20th century when what we, you know, use now, deodorants and antiperspirants get invented. And so up until this point, people have a background body odor of, of each other. They know each other's body odor really, really well. And, you know, it kind of reminds me of the difference between smoking laws, right? Back in the day, you know, you'd go to a bar and there would be tons of smoke and you, you'd go home and, and you wouldn't notice it. And now, because we have made this very, you know, smoke-free environment, when you do go to a very smoky place, it's all the more, you, like you notice it so much more it feels uh, so much more intense. So over the 20th century, we dialed down, you know, our body odor uh, to the, those around us a lot more because of these products. But, you know, simultaneously, those that marketed these products used this thing, invented this thing called whisper copy, which puts the fear of stink in humans. And, you know, in, in the 1919s, they started their advertising strategies towards women. And, the, and they started trying to convince women to buy deodorants and antiperspirants by saying, listen, you know, if, if you sweat, you stink and people are talking about you behind your back. And not only is this gossip hurting your reputation, but it's going to completely negate your ability to find a man, right? It's the 19. You're going to be an old maid. And, you know, eventually you're going to be an old maid, right? And, you know, eventually by, by the 1930s, when they've, you know, got the fear of stinking so many women that they've maxed out the the market share and they're like oh now we we still want to make more money they're like hmm what what should we do oh dudes smell too <laughs> but you know by this time they've spent a couple of decades uh, presenting this presenting deodorants and antiperspirants as a feminine product and so they have to like dial up the the masculinity in their advertising strategies and so they put deodorants and antiperspirants into like the manliest things they can imagine, which in that case at that time was like a whiskey jar. <laughs> so they're like selling deodorants out of whiskey jugs. But also their, their tactics still rely on this thing called whisper copy, right? Putting social fears of exclusion in men, but instead of focusing on, on romantic exclusion, they initially tell men, cause it's the thirties, you know, the depression that they're going to lose their job or they're not going to get a promotion that effectively, uh, stinking in the boardroom is going to hurt your career. And nowadays you see, you know, both of these strategies, you know, fear of social exclusion at work or, or, you know, in love being applied to, to everybody equally. <laughs> but yeah. It's that whisper copy, this this fear, and and you see this a lot in North America. Let's talk about the smell of bo. So the that quote you listed, the guy described it as smell like a goat. How do scientists? I mean, you just you, there's people who they, they smell armpits for a living to try to figure out what is yes. the smell. How do they describe <laughs> the smell of bo? Because I've always think it's like it smells like a like a onion whopper burger. How, what's the scientific <laughs> description of it? I have not heard that and I love it. But yes, uh, so when scientists uh, sniff armpits, they actually, chemists actually measure the molecules coming off of an armpit and they have actually found what's known as two top notes. Um, and one smells kind of goaty, kind of like feedy goaty smell. And the other one smells like overripe 
kind of like tropical fruit with a touch of onion. So your onion Whopper burger is not like totally off. And so these two top notes are, you know, the reason that when you go into an elevator and you're like, whoa, there was a really stinky person here before me, you know that it was a human instead of say, you know, a stinky dog or, or a stinky horse. And those, those two top notes are, are the things that dominate our body odor, even though they're actually hundreds of other odorous molecules that kind of like add to our symphony of smell. Um, and, you know, it's the kind of relative proportions that give you your own odor print that is distinguishable from my odor print, at least to a dog who's say tracking you versus tracking me. Are some people smellier than others? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Is, is, is that <laughs> just genetics? You know, you know, it's due to, you know, the bacteria that you produce or not produce, but that you recruit into your armpits, right? So, you know, we know about our human microbiome, you know, we've got trillions of bacteria in our, inside our digestive tract, but also all over our skin. And, you know, for the most part, this, this bacteria is uh, acting as a really helpful defense against pathogens. But also in our armpits, that particular ecosystem attracts what's known as a carinobacteria, as well as, you know, staphylococcus and, and a whole bunch of others. But people who have a higher proportion of carinobacteria in their armpits often have a more potent pong. And the crazy thing is, the, the, the craziest story I read in the book that, I, that really stuck to me was the guy who, who wasn't really smelly, but then he was amorous with a, a woman and then after that, he just smelled. He had a BO problem. And he kind of did, he did some like amateur scientific stuff and figured out, I think I got some of her bacteria on me. Now I'm, now I'm a smelly guy. Yeah. Well, he turned it into a, a PhD project um, and effectively was super interested. This was like in the early days of microbiome research. And, you know, although we've known for a long time that the actual source of our odor is, you know, the byproducts from these microbes, he thought, okay, well, you know, there's this idea of, of probiotics, right? Like, can you introduce good bacteria? And could I possibly reintroduce my good bacteria? Because yeah, he had this experience where after an amorous tryst, his whole body odor changed dramatically. And it was, you know, quite alarming for him. And ultimately, he managed to repopulate his own body with his own bacteria. Cause he's now in the process of his PhD, like analyzing exactly the like microbial membership of his armpit, right? He has those skills and he ended up having this t-shirt that he had used for years to paint, you know, when he had to like paint a, a room in a house and it had I guess the, you know, bacterial populations of his pre-amorous tryst self. And so when he, he put it on to paint a house, he noticed after that, that he, he had managed to turn his body odor back to, you know, back to normal uh, for him. So this guy, not as stinky, the lady that he slept with, stinky, but generally are there differences between the smell, the BO smell of men and women? So not a heck of a lot, but, you know, there are some studies that have shown that, you know, of these two top notes that I was talking about, that men have a higher proportion of the like stinky goaty odor and that women have a higher proportion of the tropical fruit overripe oniony odor. But quite honestly, 
you know, everybody produces both of these things in their, their armpits, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, slightly proportionally higher for women to produce the oniony odor and, and men, the goaty one. Well, let's get to why you went to Moscow. You went to a, basically it was like a smelling dating thing. Basically people were getting sweat and you were getting matched with another person based on your sweat. And I think people have heard this idea of pheromones, right? Like you can buy cologne with pheromones and it'll some sort of like love potion and people will be attracted to you. Oh my God, we have to talk about that after. (laughs) Right. Well, is there anything to this idea that there are pheromones in our sweat and being exuded by our body odor that makes us attractive to other people? Well, because a good chunk of our body odor um, appears in the sweat glands that produce sweat that, you know, show up at puberty and, you know, puberty is when we become sexually mature, you know, people think uh, or people suspect that there's got to be some sort of role that our body odor plays in, you know, mating. And so people have spent, you know, decades trying to track down a human pheromone out of our armpits. And, you know, they've gotten a lot of really tantalizing clues. Like, I think a lot of people have heard of this one experiment where women were given t-shirt samples worn by men and the women found the men to be most attractive when their immune systems were different enough that should they procreate, their progeny would have a super strong immune system. And if you, you think about that, it makes evolutionary sense because, you know, for a lot of human history, our major foe has been microbial, right? Plagues, infections, things like that. And so it behooves us, if you're going to mate, to mate with somebody who's going to give your your progeny a chance at survival by having a great immune system. But even though you can do these experiments by like, you know, asking women to pick, you know, the odor that they like and, and, you know, analyzing the blood of everybody and being like, yes, this would be a good immune match. In terms of like plucking out of our body odor, a molecule that is, you know, known as a human pheromone, that's eluded chemists. And actually, when you know about what a sex pheromone in the animal kingdom does, it kind of is probably a good thing. So, for example, a bombacol is this pheromone that moths make. And when a female releases bombacol, literally every male in the vicinity makes a beeline towards her. It is like the scientific definition of a booty call. Or wild pigs. So when male wild pig breathes heavily on a female in heat, a set of pheromones called androstenol and androstenone that is like in his saliva and kind of like percolates up in his heavy breathing. When she sniffs that, she immediately turns around and lifts her rump in the like universal sign that, you know, it's time to start a family. So that kind of like instant you know, reaction is, you know, a little bit alarming. If you think about, you know, the human world, like it's just as well, we haven't actually isolated a human sex pheromone because yeah, that could be a little dire. And 
That hasn't stopped online entrepreneurs from selling kind of pseudoscience potions that they call human pheromone colognes that like sound scientific and typically include androstenol and androstenone. So these are those wild pig pheromones and they are found in the armpits of humans, right? But both men and women produce them equally. So it can't be a pheromone, right? It can't be a message from one you know, for example, biological sex to another. But, you know, if you wear one of those pheromone colognes, you just might attract a female, but it's going to be a female wild pig rather than a female human. And, you know, no judgment if that's your goal. But yeah, it's probably not what most of the people buying those things want. But in terms of like romance, you know, this kind of notion of a human pheromone, people say, oh yeah, you know, I fell in love with him or her because of, you know, the way that they smelt, right? About their unique odor print, as opposed to what we know from the strict definition of a a sex pheromone, which would work equally on literally every member of the human species, right? It's not, it's anonymous. It's not unique. It's not the thing that made you fall for, you know, whoever you fell for as your one and only. But so, okay. So basically there's the scientists, there's something going on because you know, people can detect yes. differences. And I think was another study too, like men find the smell of women ovulating more attractive than women who aren't. Wasn't there a study like that with yes. t-shirts? Yeah. So yeah, lap dancers. Yeah, lap dancers got more tips. They suspect there's yes. some kind of odor going. So like scientists, there's something going on, but they just don't know what basically is what what's going on. Yeah, that is pretty much basically what is going on. And there are so many molecules percolating out of armpits that, yeah, it's it's been a long, hard road. And many researchers have like really tried to, to pluck out something that's like giving us a, a, a strict cue that like, I want to mate with you. And that so far has, you know, been unsuccessful. Well, another thing that can, can get transmitted via our body odor is fear. Have we figured out yes. what, have you figured out what fear smells like? So that's a super interesting area of research. So it kind of stems from the fact that a lot of law enforcement folks say that when a person comes in for questioning, for interrogation, that they come in smelling like themselves. But after interrogation, after all those tough questions have been asked, everybody leaves smelling the same of this like strong, potent anxiety odor. And when researchers have, you know, tried to follow up on that anecdote, again, they found really interesting evidence that this is true. So they, they gave people tight white t-shirts to wear and put them in front of a television and had them watch kind of a nature documentary and then had them watch a really scary movie so that they produced, you know, just their normal pong and then like super stressed out, scared body odor. And when they presented those t-shirts to a panel of sniffers, the sniffers could distinguish, you know, from perfect strangers who was stressed out and who was just stinky, right? Like who, who was actually fearful and who was just smelling. And, you know, the, the folks that with probably the most interest in this is the military, because you can imagine if you have a bunch of soldiers in a tank and one starts getting really scared that this odor is going to be detected by others. And, you know, it might 
spread fear when all of these soldiers really need to, you know, stay focused and, and hopefully a little bit unafraid. And so the military is interested in plucking out this anxiety odor molecule so that they can effectively capture it like you would capture like a poison gas. And, you know, there's other kind of more dystopian applications that you can imagine, you know, if you figured out what that odor is, the one that is like the, the smell of fear, you could use it, you know, uh, on crowds to do crowd control. So again, chemists have been trying for a long time to pluck out that molecule. They haven't so far been successful, but they are quite close. Well, let's talk about uh, deodorant and antiperspirants a bit. Circle back to that. So it became a thing in America, the turn of the 20th century, They're using the whisper copy saying you'll be an old maid or a, a bum if you don't use deodorant. But there's a difference between deodorant and antiperspirants. What is the difference? And let's talk about antiperspirants because you've been hearing a lot about that, uh, that antiperspirants are bad for you and you should use a natural deodorant. What does the research say about that? Sure. So the main difference between deodorants and antiperspirants is how they work to thwart sweat. So deodorants have antiseptics in them. And so effectively what happens is you put on deodorant and you kill all the bacteria in your armpit, including the ones that cause odor right? Whereas antiperspirants plug your sweat pores in your armpit, which include both like the apocrine, the ones making that waxy sweat that like bacteria like to eat. And also just, you know, the wet stuff that comes out when you're, you're exercising. And so antiperspirants work by literally cutting off the food supply to the hungry bacteria and in doing so prevent odor from being formed. And that's why antiperspirants though also help you avoid wet patches, whereas deodorants are just dealing with odor. And the way that antiperspirants plug pores and have always plugged pores, like literally the the very first antiperspirant products uh, relied on aluminum salts. So it used to be aluminum chloride. Now it's a more complicated aluminum salt. But, you know, there's a lot of people who have fears about putting on a product that's got aluminum in it, in part because, you know, aluminum in in high amounts is, is a neurotoxin. That being said, you know, in terms of our earth, we have, you know, evolved on a planet where aluminum is one of the highest percentage metals in the mantle. And a lot of the food, for example, that we eat, like sesame seeds, um, even potatoes have high amounts of aluminum in them. And so our body has evolved ways to rid itself of, of aluminum. And that's usually through the kidney, which filters out nasty stuff, not just aluminum from our, our blood and, you know, dispatches it out in pee. And so because of this, like concerns about aluminum being a, a neurotoxin, it is a neurotoxin. There's been worries that, you know, if you put on deodorants, that you're going to up your body burden so much that it will give you, you know, neurological problems or, or Alzheimer's. And, you know, all the research uh, has been done on this for, for decades and shows that there's really uh, not a strong correlation at all between wearing antiperspirants and, and, and Alzheimer's. It's not something to fear, yet it kind of keeps coming back. And, and actually, the European Commission has a, a scientific committee that looks at consumer products, and they recently revisited the issue and forced the cosmetic care industry to, to do some pretty sophisticated experiments to see whether 
putting on antiperspirant effectively gets aluminum into your bodies at a level that is dangerous. And, and they found that there was no cause for concern. And, you know, those, those studies were, were published in 2020. So, you know, yeah, aluminum is not great to ingest, but we are getting it in our bodies from eating and, and you know, from all sorts of other things like lipstick and other things have, have aluminum in it. But yeah, it's probably by wearing any perspirant every day, it's probably not, you know, pushing that aluminum body burden to, to the point of, of concern. That being said, I, you know, I mix and match. So, you know, when I have to, you know, for example, stand up in front of a whole bunch of people and I don't want to have sweaty patches because I'm like, you know, nervous, I'll sometimes wear any perspirant. And, you know, if it's a day where, you know, I don't have to do anything particularly huge, but I don't feel like smelling my own BO, I'll, you know, put on deodorant. So, you know, I, I don't think it's a huge cause for concern, but yeah, it has been one for, for many years. So, so we, we sweat to keep cool and it's an automatic process. You have no control whether you sweat or not, but cultures around the world and across time, they've come up with the practices where they can you know, basically create a, an environment where they purposely sweat. So I'm talking saunas, sweat lodges, you know, Asian cultures have similar like hot, being really hot. Why do you think this is a universal across humanity where we just want to sweat? I mean, what is it about getting really hot and sweaty that feels good? Yeah, we crave that catharsis. And I think part of it is that, you know, when you work up a sweat, you effectively even say you go into a sauna or a gym jilbang in Korea or a hammam in, in the Middle East, um, you are effectively forcing your heart into a little tiny workout, right? Because you go into this really hot room and in order to cool down, your heart starts beating fast to move the hot blood in your interior out to the surface of your skin so that it can be cooled down by sweat evaporation, right? So you, you effectively get your heart pumping. And that has knockdown effects where, you know, you produce those same happy hormones that you get when you exercise profusely or go for a run. The runner's high. The endorphins, you also have like epinephrine that's, that's being produced. And so you do actually get a biochemical high when you sweat profusely in a sauna. So I think that there is this, you know, feelings of joy and catharsis um, that you get when you sweat in a sauna and also that you get if you like really work out hard and have that, you know, euphoria, that post-workout euphoria. Something you didn't mention, it doesn't detox. Oh, yes. That is the biggest myth. This, yeah. If you ask me, like, what is my, you know, my biggest sweat pet peeve? It's this notion that sweating is a way to detox. And that's so totally wrong. And it like reveals a fundamental misunderstanding of how our bodies work. So remember how I said that sweat is sourced from the watery parts of blood? Yes. So, if you were to detox by sweating, right? Where a detox, the idea of a detox is like you get all the crap that's circulating around your body out of your body, right? So if you were to detox by sweating, you would literally have to get rid of all the liquidy parts of your blood. You would have to sweat out all your wet parts of blood. You would have to effectively dehydrate yourself, at which point you would dry up and die. That just doesn't make sense. Instead, our bodies detox using the kidney, right? So our, our kidney filters out all the gunk in our blood, 
right? And dispatches out all the bad stuff in pee. And anything that's coming out in sweat is just incidental. So yes, certainly you can sweat out some, some nasty things that are circulating in your blood if they happen to be there, but also you're sweating out, you know, glucose, which your body uses as energy and hormones, anything that's in that liquidy part of blood. And so this notion that sweat is a detox strategy, super, super wrong. And it's really good that we don't detox by sweating because yeah, (laughs) you don't really want to dehydrate and die. Okay. So yes, sweating does remove stuff from your body, but it, that's just incidental. You're not going to be able to purify yourself with just sweating. So when you go to the sauna, just enjoy the sauna simply because it feels really good to get hot and sweaty. Enjoy that little workout you get in there, the endorphins, just do it for the joy of sweat itself. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Sarah, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? They can go to my publisher's website, Norton, or my own website, sarahevertz.com, or they can, you know, grab the book off a shelf and, and read it. Well, Sarah Everts, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. My guest today was Sarah Everts. She's the author of the book, The Joy of Sweat. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Check out our show notes at aom.is slash sweat, where you can find links to resources, where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcast or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you to not only listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.